Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. In our last episode, we began our fourth season and our current series on Genesis 1 through 3. These opening chapters of the Bible are chock full of theological import, and we're trying to pay special attention to reading them in the original context. This is episode two, and here we start looking directly at Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. Yes. Why not begin at the beginning? Yes. There's so much in this epic chapter that's so familiar to many Christians, so let's get the conversation started. Ron, as we get going here, it's worth pointing out that Genesis 1 and 2 are not the only creation texts in the Old Testament. Okay. That surprises some people because we're accustomed to thinking immediately of Genesis when it comes to creation, and we typically stop there. Mm -hmm. It's true that Genesis 1 and 2 are the foundational creation texts, but they're not the only ones to tell us about creation. Creation and related themes were fodder for later poetic reflection that most of us don't think about when we consider what the Bible says concerning the origins of the world and the God who brought it about. As you and I were talking about this, John, you brought up the story of Job. Yes. My mind went immediately to a very specific chapter of Job, but you pointed to something earlier, specifically chapter 26. At that point, Job's still in the middle of the discussion with his friends, and there he describes God's creative work in laying out the natural world. Job says, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space, suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. Job wraps up this meditation of sorts, marveling at God's greatness. Who then can understand the thunder of his power. Mm. I'd call that foreshadowing for what comes next. Uh, yes. God confronts Job at the end of that book, chapter 38, and it goes on for four chapters. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Sorry, I can't <laughs> help it. That may be one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible. And where my mind immediately went when you mentioned creation in Job, it's God's question to Job at the beginning of that confrontation. Yes. From that point on, God does the talking. And what follows is a heavily creation-themed speech rebuking Job for presuming to sit in judgment over God's governance in the world. Mm. Ron, we touch on this section of Job, it seems, from time to time because yeah. it's relevant to such a spectrum of theological topics. And here it is again. God reviews the sheer power of creating and sustaining creation as God invites Job to compare his human power with God's visible divine might. We get all kinds of language around the foundations of the earth, mm -hmm. the land itself, the stars, the seas, the skies, the underworld, the animals, birds, light and darkness, wind, storms, rain and ice, and more than that. Well, another good example of a creation story in the Old Testament is Isaiah 40. And we've actually spent some time with portions of that chapter as well. The beginning and end of that may be better known by Christians than the middle section. The chapter opens with comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And that's followed shortly with in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I think we have an entire series under that name, John. Yes, yes. Prepare the way. We did a whole series on that. As I understand it, in its original context, those words refer to the end of the Babylonian exile. God would come to the people as a powerful and victorious king, but also gentle and merciful, and he would return them to their home. 
as the chapter develops, Isaiah answers a question that would naturally follow. How could Israel, and ultimately how can we, know that God will actually do all this, that God will fulfill God's promises? And behind that lies another question. Is there really hope that this will happen given their desperation? And again, in its original context, that desperation is the desperation of a people in exile. Yes. The answer Isaiah gives is a powerful litany of God's work at creation. We know God can and will fulfill God's promises because the God of creation makes them. He's unwavering in his intention to keep that promise, and he has the power to execute what he intends. The language that celebrates God as creator here is magnificent. God governs creation with absolute sovereignty. What nation or ruler can impose its will on a God who, for example, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? That's a great example. It clearly belongs on this list of Old Testament creation texts. We can also add Psalm 104 and and the second half of Proverbs 8. Okay. It would be easy to take a whole episode <laughs> just on this group of creation passages. But for now, here's the overall point, though, I think we want to make. When the Old Testament prophets and writings speak of and reflect on creation, they are highly stylized and poetic. However, they consistently point to the same theological concerns that we find in Genesis. God is the one who created the world that we see around us. This God is the one and only true God, and this God is all-powerful over God's creation and within God's creation. Okay. We should not worship anything in creation itself because every element is merely something God has made, and it's under God's sovereign control. There is, therefore, nothing that this God cannot do, no promise this God cannot consequently keep, and nothing else out there to which worship should ever be directed. Now, Ron, I don't want to make an argument from silence, but we should at least notice something that is not present in any of these other poetic texts that reflect on creation. Okay. Nowhere do we find the subject of how long creation took. Okay. Nowhere is there reference to the physical mechanics of natural processes involved in creation, as modern scientific inquiry might frame its questions. These other texts do nothing to lead us into a modern analysis of the Earth's age, of astrophysics, paleontology, geology, or any other scientific concerns. As I said, we don't want to attempt to argue too much from what is not there, but it's hard to ignore. Not only are some of the sacred cows of modern Christians not the concern of Genesis when okay. we read it in its original context, but there is also no evidence that later reflections on creation in the Bible gave any thought to them either. Okay. Uh, well, point taken. There are lots of texts that deal directly with creation in the Old Testament, and their concerns aren't always exactly what we expected. But speaking of sacred cows, let's go back to the point where there were no cows to be sacred, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, groan. Let's look to the text of Genesis 1 itself. We'll work our way towards some of these conclusions we've suggested so far. That God is the focus of this story is evident from the very start. Mm. God's majesty, God's sovereignty, and the power of God's word are front and center throughout. And that's no small observation. The opening sentence is so well known that even some people with no other knowledge of the Bible know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, Ron, do any other books of the Bible also start that way? 
<laughs> of course. And thank you for the nod to the New Testament before we even make it two steps into the old. The Gospel of John does indeed start with the words in the beginning. It's two words in Greek, but it's identical in the Greek translation of Genesis and in the Greek text of John, ain arche. John, of course, is making a deliberate allusion to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, and this specific verse. And as I think we're about to discover here, John's concern is the question, who? Who was at creation? Who was responsible for it? Now, John's going to put Jesus there at creation with profound theological consequences, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Have I guessed right, though, that Who creates is one of the primary concerns here. Yes. Yeah, you got it. We see here in the foreground that creation proclaims knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. This is a soundly biblical concept, and it's affirmed elsewhere in Scripture, like Psalm 19 and Romans 1, for example. As the story gets going, we understand that above all else, what is being revealed here is God. Who is the God of creation? As we discussed in the last episode, Ron, this knowledge of God— is meant to challenge other views about gods and goddesses and their role in creation that existed in the ancient Near East. That's why the story is told in the way that ancient creation stories were told, even if what it reveals is entirely different. It's still an ancient creation story, even though the creation story it tells points to a different god as the source of the world we live in. So, yes, we are affirming that Genesis 1 is not unique as a literary genre, but it is unique theologically. The point is that the creation that people had heard attributed to the activity of other gods was, in fact, the work of one God alone, and it came about by the word of that God alone, not as a result of some cosmic struggle. God's sovereign claims on creation are because of this, because he didn't struggle to create. He didn't fight other gods for supremacy and then win that supremacy from them. That would suggest that God would then need to continue fighting to protect it, right? Lest another god take it from him someday. This is very different from the common worldview of that time. Well, John, we should acknowledge that this observation, that this first Genesis creation account is not a unique literary genre. That makes some people nervous. We Christians insist the Bible is God's word and it's unique. Is it not? And we can be forgiven then if we imagined everything about it was new, standalone, never before seen, especially when we're not familiar with other literature from the time. It's true that the Bible is unique. Neither one of us is going to argue otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Christians insist that it's inspired and authoritative as no other writings are. But we set out to read this in its original context, didn't we? Right. When we ask how it would be understood by the ancient peoples who initially received it, we realize there are many literary conventions and traditions that were already familiar to those people. Okay. The Bible used familiar containers— in order to reveal knowledge in a way that could be received, understood, and digested. They deliberately parallel other ancient stories, like the Babylonian Enuma Elish and the Epic of Atrahasis and the Sumerian text called Eridu Genesis, for example, in order to make their unique point. Okay. This does not take anything away from the Bible or lessen it in any way. There is literary brilliance in the way it uses the forms that it does to communicate the unique message that it does. This need not make us nervous. Okay. It is it is clearly not the same as reducing the Bible to just another book. I think that's probably the underlying fear. 
Got it. Well, let's look again at the opening of Genesis, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. After that initial statement that God created everything, the heavens or skies and the earth, we learn a few important things. Although we don't get any precise information about what God was working with or, or not working with, as the case may be. First, we learn that creation was unformed. There is no elaboration on that because the detail isn't important to the point. Whatever was or was not was formless. Second, we learn that creation was unfilled. Again, another negative. This sets up the expectation that someone's going to do some forming and then some filling yes. if creation is to come about. But here in the beginning, creation was unformed and unfilled. These are the two main things the text wants us to know. And third, we learned that the situation was dark. And John, I think you chose the word deep watery. Yes, deep watery. <laughs> In the ancient mind, darkness and watery abyss were ways of describing chaos. That is something unorganized. But more than that, it was threatening, scary. In fact, there was no doubt a negative connotation when the original readers encountered this. The question was, is there anyone who can turn chaos into not chaos or darkness into not darkness. The one who could would be impressive and powerful indeed. And remember, this was pre-creation, so to speak. Was there anyone on hand even to attempt it? Ah, indeed there was. And that's the fourth thing that we learn here. Okay. God was there. What was God doing? Hovering. <laughs> like a helicopter? Like a helicopter. <laughs> Once again, I don't think we're supposed to try to visualize this or give in to our modern inclination to add a bunch of precision here. Okay. The Hebrew root there for hovering is rachaf, which means to tremble or to flutter or even to quake. Okay. So the image, and remember, we don't get carried away with visual particulars. The image is of God above the unformed and unfilled chaotic darkness. Mm. That is, God is not part of that chaotic darkness, but God is outside of and superior to it. And that presence of God is pulsating or quivering. We might say pulsating with creative energy or purpose. And this is where the creation story starts. What will this creator God do? He does nothing more than speak, right? Mm. All that God needed to do was to will creation. That's what unfolds in the next three verses. Yeah. Recall that a key characteristic of the so-called pre-creation, that unordered chaos, was darkness. God ordered that darkness by creating light and giving boundaries to the darkness. The light and the darkness together then brought an initial ordering to the chaos. Now, interestingly, light and dark are associated with temporal ideas right away, mm -hmm. day and night. And this gives a further idea of structure and ordered movement to the emerging creation. That idea is rhetorically very important in the way that creation unfolds from here. It provides the primary framework for the rest of the chapter. But first, there's an interesting note made about the light. The light was good. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word in verse 4 is well translated by the word good, but it kind of begs the question and invites us to go a little deeper. What is meant by good here theologically? Yeah, we've spent some time in other contexts on this as well, John. I get that the form God is enforcing on creation here does stand in contrast to the chaos that precedes it. But I can't help but get the sense that good here in verse 4 is not so much good in contrast to bad as it is good simply to mean 
as God intended. In other words, creation is now being stamped with the form God meant for it. Mm. Maybe I'm impressing it a little too far, but clearly I'm not too far off with the idea that good is now synonymous with what God intended and serving the purpose that God intends. Fair enough. One of the many powerful features of this chapter is the amazing way that it's structured. There is a clear, tight structure or ordering to this story about God bringing order to form creation. Mm -hmm. It's rhetorically rich and brilliant. Remember at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, the earth was unformed and unfilled, as you said, Ron. Right. If that's the description of chaos, then what's the opposite? What needs to happen? There needs to be forming and there needs to be filling. (laughs) Right. And that's exactly what happens, and in that order. Okay. The framework uses the idea of days, the initial order of light alongside of darkness, to structure what follows into six parts. The first three describe forming. Day and night, sea and sky, and earth are formed. But now that these are formed, they're still unfilled. Right. So in perfect parallel to what God formed, God fills. What fills the day and night of day one? The sun and the moon, that is the greater and lesser light of day four. What fills the sea and sky of day two? The creatures of the water and of the air of day five. What fills the dry land of the earth? The land animals and human beings of day six. So each forming has a corresponding filling. Okay. Days one and four, two and five, three and six are perfectly matched in an ordered framework, and the days provide that framework. That's the purpose of the days. John, it probably shouldn't have been, but it was an aha moment for me when I first heard you describe it this way. The arrangement is just so neat. It's something I had completely missed, but it was perfectly obvious when you pointed it out. Form, then fill. Mm -hmm. Form specific domains on days one, two, and three. Fill those domains on days four, five, and six. By the way, as an aside, something else is also going on here that's important. We suggested it earlier. Ancient peoples often worshipped elements of creation, like the sun, the moon, trees, even the earth itself. Genesis 1 very intentionally counters that. Okay. It's very clear that all of these things are merely created. They are not to be worshipped as gods and goddesses themselves. All the focus is on the one creator. This chapter tells an ancient person that there is nothing to worship in created things. They are not deities. Okay. But back on track. (laughs) Day six, that gives us the creatures for the land, the land animals, and the human beings. That day is, in a sense, a climax to creation. The crowning point of creation is human life, Mm -hmm. created at the end of the filling and created in the image of God by divine design for rulership. When humankind is created, that section is introduced by something that often sounds strange to us. It says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. Why is that plural? (laughs) And Ron, (laughs) you know what I'm going to ask. Yes. Christians just always seem to have such a ready answer for that. Yeah, (laughs) right. And I think I have 
was one of the ones who early on wanted to propose that. And you have shown me the error of my ways. Someone <laughs> might be tempted to read that in a Trinitarian way. Let us refers to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians might want to say, after all, didn't the Spirit hover over the waters? As much as it would delight me to do that, let's stay in context, which is what we set out to do here. That is not what original readers would have seen. And, and it's way too early to read it that way. I believe you've got another explanation for that, John. Yeah. In its original context, and by that we mean how an ancient Israelite would naturally read it, this most likely refers to God's divine counsel. We know that God is not alone in the heavenly realm, but God is the only God. It isn't an assembly of other divine beings like it was in the theologies of the other peoples in the Near East, but there are other heavenly beings around God to whom God might speak. It might sound strange to us, but it's a very natural, contextual way to see this. Okay. Now, is God inviting others into the creating to be co-creators, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Well, no, because the next verse says, so God created humankind in his image, and that's in the singular, Okay. just like in the rest of creation that precedes. The simplest, most natural way to read the plural is God speaking to a group about what he will do and what they will all be present for and watching like the angels who shouted for joy as they watched God lay the foundations of the earth in Job 38. Let's go do this or that, meaning we'll all be there, even though I'll be the one actually doing it. The image of God is such an important part of this. Yeah. We can't linger here for long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry to say, but, but it is worth looking at. In the ancient Near East, Kings and emperors didn't make it around to the far reaches of their kingdoms. However, they needed to remind the people whose kingdom they were a part of. They needed something that would draw the people's eyes and thoughts and loyalty (laughs) to them. So they set up statues of themselves to represent the king and the king's rule in those parts of their empires. They were called images of the king. Now, in context, then, the main thrust of this idea of image has to do with status rather than with a set of characteristics or abilities. We are God's representatives on earth. We are created to image God in God's dominion. Notice what follows immediately. The mandate to multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. We are to create more images, spread out, and exercise rule over creation as God rules over it. Some scholars call this vice-regency. We carry out God's will in this realm— just as the heavenly beings carry out God's will in that realm. John, I realize we can't dwell long here, but the idea that we are made in the image of God was absolutely crucial to early Christian writers. And they were entirely committed to this idea that we are each representatives of God. The catch is that sin effaced or rubbed away this image of God within us, like the face on a coin being worn away in your pocket. Their point was that only God could restore the image of God. And that's what happens in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A well-known proponent of this was Athanasius in a work called On the Incarnation. And this, he argued, was precisely why Jesus had to be God become human. But more on that on another time. Uh. Now, we've already observed there are, in fact, multiple creation stories in Genesis. Here in chapter one, we've been looking at the first of those. However, the first creation story does not end here in chapter one. It actually extends a few more verses into what we call chapter two. Up to here, we've been in the framework of forming and filling. The seventh day of the story is neither. Instead, it's a crown of sorts on top of it all. We know it is the Sabbath and it reflects creation's completion. Right. First, we're told precisely that. All of creation was complete. That's the first verse of chapter two. Then, 
because creation was complete, God rested and blessed. That's verses 2 and 3. Uh, think of rested as being at rest okay. rather than having a siesta or needing to recharge or something like that. When something is at rest, we recognize it as being still, not in motion, rather than being tired and taking a nap. Right. With forming and filling complete, the seventh day was not like the others. God ceased because it was his creation and he was free to do so. It recognized the fullness and the perfection of what God had done. It could not and was not meant to be added to. So the day was set apart, or in other words, made holy. The meaning of this seventh day would eventually become an important part of Israel's national life. In fact, maintaining a set-apart Sabbath day would show up as one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and, and again in Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus, the rationale for keeping a Sabbath is directly linked to this creation text. We could have a whole episode on this alone, but (laughs) (laughs) we can't add any more to this one, and that'll have to wait. Ron, in our language about this series, we've teased a little bit the idea that the stories in the opening chapters of Genesis are crucial to the way Christians describe God's work in the world, but not always in the ways we might expect. Right, and we did also mention this text is something people are intimately familiar with, and no doubt on one level, we do hear exactly what we expect. But we've also introduced some things that might be new, or at least previously unemphasized, maybe even altogether unexpected. By placing the focus on what ancient readers would hear, though, we've not focused on some things certain modern Christian readers expect to see front and center begging for rigorous debate. If we keep our eye on the ball, contextually speaking, though, we discover an essential theological core that includes these points. This opening creation story intends to tell the reader that the God of Israel and that God alone is creator of all things. By speech alone, creation was. God did not battle other gods or exert himself to create. In fact, no other gods are even present in the story. In creation, God brought order from chaos. This is a redemptive pattern that will become important as the biblical story goes on. For now, though, we're supposed to recognize that this God is all-powerful. God wields that power to break darkness and disorder and to bring light and order from that dark chaos. That action is an essential characteristic of this God. Finally, human beings are part of creation and made in the image of that all-powerful creator God. Because of that, we have a special role in it. In our next episode, we'll wade further into chapter 2, where we find the next creation story. That story zooms in and focuses less on the broader general creation landscape and more on the specific part of creation that involves human beings. Among other questions, that story necessarily asks, what does it mean to be human? Yet again, the challenge will be to keep an eye on context. That is our guide to what the story is and is not telling us about the world and ourselves. And that's where we'll have to wrap up this episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.